0: Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. The Paris Masters are underway. Rafa loses his second-round match to Tommy Paul. Djokovic beats Maxime Cressy and we'll play Karen Hatchinov a little bit later on. Uh, let's start with Nadal. My feeling is that of all his losses this year, this one might have been the least surprising, Amy, uh, given we haven't really seen him play great since Wimbledon. He's coming off of, you know, the the U.S. Open break where he went home to kind of focus on on being with his family, his wife having their first kid. Um, And then it's not like you're you're coming back on clay. You go to the Paris Masters indoor hardcourt. You have to play Tommy Paul in your first match. (laughs) Would you agree with that, that this might be the least surprising Nadal loss of the year?
1: Yeah, not surprising and kind of like, well, dang, you actually played well for part of the match, given all those circumstances that you talked about. And I mean, I, I, I think he's got the right attitude because after the match, he said for the tour finals. I'm just going to go out there and enjoy it. I'm not, you know, he's, he's downplaying expectations, you know, look at all this stuff that's happened to me and I'm still coming back from injury. And if I can get there, that's, that's good enough for me. So there's zero expectations. And, you know, Tommy Paul is in match shape right now. He's a, an American player who I think is very high quality and has an amazing upside and is on the rise. And that, that was kind of a nightmare draw for him in terms of if he really did want to advance in this tournament. Plus, as we always say with Nadal, these conditions indoor hardcore are not his preferred conditions.
2: Spot on. And I agree about all, all those things. And uh, yeah, Nadal downplaying expectations. Yeah, that's like Rafa. <laughs> And uh, I'm also a, a coach I'm in touch with who's in Paris. It's, uh, the coach playing pretty fast. So you've got a guy like Paul who's kind of in the, in the full flush. It's kind of like the, uh, he's really getting his uh, – earning his keep in the pro world. You know, he's no longer young, and, and he's really getting his way. So playing a, a, a hard striking American on an indoor surface like that who's been there for weeks now, yeah, that's a tough go. And had just beaten uh, Batista Gu. So Paul felt pretty battle-tested. Granted, at the same time, Nadal's up a set and a break. Second set tie-break. The tiebreaker really got away from him. And then it pretty much ran out, huh?
0: Yeah. Well, Tommy played great in, in the tie-break because all four points Nadal won was with his serve, service winners. And uh, two service winners, two aces. And Paul won at 7-4, uh, which I think speaks mm-hmm. a lot to just how well Tommy played, uh, winning mm-hmm. every single extended exchange. The, the Masters 1000 format, it's got to be the toughest format to come back to because if you're Nadal, you get a buy and then you're pretty much going to play a really, really good player.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that played into it. Uh, let's talk tactically, though. Can we problem solve from Nadal's perspective? Because I saw the same thing in his loss against Tiafo at the US Open and his loss to Tommy Paul here, which is that these flat hard backhands and they both take it really early cross court into Nadal's forehand it's been it was so effective for both of them because Nadal his defense it just it doesn't have a lot of depth to it it's angled to the backhand which is could be good but they have just great backhands it doesn't bother mm-hmm. them and, uh, and the spin, like the U.S. Open, is a slick, low-bouncing kind of court. This is a slick, low-bouncing kind of court. The spin isn't going to make up for the lack of depth. Uh, so they're just on top of the point with their backhands. Um, and then, you know, they're just generating short balls off of that pattern.
2: Well, I think what's happening, it's almost like the three, like let's focus on Rafa, been around so long that the entire sport has seen the questions he asked the attempted answers, and now the created answers, because you know these, this, this generation—you know—the whole generation of people who've grown up watching Nadal. You know, they're not just three or four years younger than him; they're they're ten or fifteen years younger than him, and they're starting. And they and they watched. They watched how Novak. You know, Novak has spent the better part of the last ten years problem-solving Nadal with his two-hander, right? I mean, earlier we saw earlier in Nadal's career we saw him posing the questions to Roger, and even Roger to a degree began to answer those later with some pretty bold one-handers. So Dwight, you're right. It's like the uh, the cross-court, you won't have that cross-court forehand to kick me around anymore as much.
1: Yeah, I, I almost need to go back and watch exactly how Nadal won the Australian Open this year because it's, it's kind of hard to remember. Was it one big giant scramble? Um, because that you would think would not be his ideal surface either. And yet he did it um i think at the time he was just getting a lot of depth on his forehand and and he was rested and refreshed and just hitting his forehand really well and in this case as you mentioned not getting a ton of depth on the forehand
2: yeah. but in, in australia in australia see i think the the key to that match is he revealed medvedev's shortcomings in the transition area which
1: but it wasn't just that match though it was the whole tournament You know,
2: he was still, you know, also then we're talking, I mean, Nadal, the aura of the three out of five set match. He
0: he was moving a lot better to his left. I think just getting there and more time, which is going to obviously be a key in terms of how well he's able to hit the the shot. But Joel, to your point, you know, that pattern uh, to me, it's not point finishing it's short ball generating. And then it's, what do you do with the short ball? And Tommy's, volleys were incredible in this match. He won 80% of his points. Um, When he came to net, if you looked at the total points versus net points one, he won 25% of his points at the net. So that short ball generation was leading to finishes at the net. um, Precisely,
2: if I may, precisely what Medvedev was not so adept at doing in that Australian Open final. But Rafa, the, the Rafa therefore could get away with shorter forehands. And we know when we know which neighborhoods of the court are safer, it's a lot more comfortable. And so, like these guys, like like as Novak has proven, particularly on these hard surfaces, not so easy for Nadal to find his way into the into the rally to gain traction.
0: Positives for Nadal, um, I think there were some. I think he served well enough for me to say, okay, I, I think the abs behind him. Like I, I'm not a hundred percent there, but i'm I'm almost there. A couple more performances like that and and I could get there. So that's obviously something we were looking at coming into the match. Uh, the second thing that was interesting is he did something he doesn't like to do throughout his career, which is stand up on the baseline for the second serve return and really attack it, like try to be offensive off the second serve return. He did that really well, and it was it was why he won the first set. Paul was 3 for 11 on second serve points in the first set. Those are my, my two positives for Rafa coming out of the match. Do you have any thoughts on those, Amy?
1: Yeah, those are good ones. I, I think perspective, added perspective, too, because he could have won the match, he's it all, you know, of course he could have won the match, um, and just coming out of the match, he's not too broken up about it, so there's nothing like having a child that will add perspective, and be like, oh, okay, so I, I didn't win the Paris Masters this year, and I'm heading into the tour finals, who cares, you know, I'll, I'll I'll figure it out in the off season and I'll be refreshed for next year
2: and stay healthy. I mean, I think even the, even the return stance is a way. Yeah. I want to, let's play some shorter points here. Let's stay healthy. Let's play some shorter points. Let's just see what happens. And we're going to play, you're going to play this round robin, get at least three matches and finish the year nicely. Go home.
0: Yeah, it, it'll be good for him. And he said, you know, I I need to play on the tour. I haven't played on the tour enough this year, was, was what he was saying after the match. Um, the Before we kind of move on from this, the last three games of the match were a little funky. Uh, something looked very, very off with Rafa. He was serve-volleying a lot. Yeah. He wasn't going through his routine. And uh, I still can't really figure out what happened there other than perhaps, you know, he, he just started feeling really sick because he wasn't used to uh, pushing his body to that extent yet.
1: Well, there's been speculation that he was injured. We just don't know. And then he said, if I can make it to the tour finals. So who knows?
0: Yeah, it was weird. I don't know. Uh, Specifically, there was no resolution from what I read, Amy, from what you read, in the press conference of, of what actually happened in those last three games. But uh, you know, you'll notice we, we did this last, right. This was the last topic because at the end of the day, Nadal looked okay Mm -hmm. until three, one down in the third set. Um, And it was just the last three games were, were kind of weird. So, okay. Uh, Let's uh, let's go on to Djokovic actually. No, one more thing. He's a father now. Is that going to, uh, what is that going to change for, for Rafa in, in your opinion, Amy?
1: I don't know because I don't know him personally. I wish I did. And, <laughs> and of the three, I think he's the one maybe that's the most guarded as to what he's actually like in real life. Like, what is he like to live with? What is his personality like? We think we know him, but we don't really know him so um he said something very very sweet about his young son and and you can almost like he's opening up the window a little bit into his mind and he said it's hard to believe that I've only known this person for three weeks and already I miss him it's you know possible to miss him so it's it's really fun to see Nadal becoming a father and and um you know reckoning his career with with fatherhood and all that and and the changes that'll happen but how it will affect him I don't know
2: I also agree with you he is the most opaque he's the as far as what's he really like as if that matters I mean I've been I've been asked that question for 40 years about tennis players what they really like you know and it's at the same time a certain part of me um gives up. I mean, I I wrote, I learned this when I wrote about Andre Agassi and his book, and he admitted in his book that for 20 years, he hadn't been telling the truth about things. And so in a way, the very nature of these incredible athletes is the same thing with actors and singers. It's like who we can never know. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, and we think we know Roger because he speaks so much in a way, because we see how he speaks and that seems to give an idea. But again, I don't know and I don't even know if I should even, sometimes I wonder if I should even care because I care most about what they do. I mean, I didn't, I, didn't, I don't care what Shakespeare was like or Bach mm. Mozart. I don't know about, I wonder about that. And at the same time, I do like to know because it's a, an individual sport and their personalities and you see how these emotions affect how they go about performing and, and what it means. I mean, I think it would be, it, um, with Federer we've seen it more because his fatherhood came much earlier in his career. I mean, I think yeah. he was 27 or 28 when his first kids were born. So we've seen him through that and talking about that I, with Rafa. I suspect we'll, uh, I don't think we'll ever know Ra- Rafa the way we think we know Roger and, and Novak.
0: P- part of his thing is privacy, right? I mean, he lives on an island. Uh, he's talked, you know, so affectionately about how in Majorca he's treated like a normal person, not a celebrity. And he has such an affinity for his home because he gets to go be a normal person and barbecue and uh, play, play soccer outside with with his family. He wouldn't call it soccer. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that's a fascinating topic. I think that our three, you know, their tennis is so dynamic that they don't need to really give us much else uh, for people to care about them. People are going to care about them through their tennis. But I think for, for other athletes in the sport, it would be really great if if uh, fans could have an attachment to who they are off the court. And I think that would make tennis fandom more dynamic. That's where I land on it.
1: Yeah. I think the women too. I mean, big time. Um, I'd love to know know more about Jessica Pagula. You know, who is she? What, what's she like to hang out with? Um, What are her interests? Things like that on the court. She is so within herself and, and there's a lot of, uh, women that are like that. Um, so I would love to to get to know more and to see more of a marketing effort there.
2: Well, it's funny. I I, 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 I um having spent years hunting and, and and negotiating with agents for interviews in increments of five minutes, it don't come easy in this. <laughs> yeah. time. And it's and it's real. And I and I talk with some of my colleagues in other sports from other years, also from other years when they would sometimes almost be. Embedded with the subject for a few days or time, it's just then you get the quantity of time that allows you to get the quality, and then you become more of a fly on the wall than having to be in some concocted interview in a conference room, mm-hmm. right? And so that how, how does that reveal? And then it's just really it's really tough in tennis also because the individual performing thing, the uncertainty of the match schedule. The the players yeah. sometimes becoming bigger than the game. It's really I'm not saying why it can't happen. I'm just seeing why it's been really difficult with active players. Once they're once they retire, it can become it can be very different, maybe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Djokovic against Maxime Cressy, the servant vollier. We've uh we've all fantasized about Sampras Djokovic at Wimbledon, right? What would that be like? Oh, look, we're never going to get that, uh, but we do get Djokovic Cressy for the first time. Joel, what did you make of it?
2: I thought that was pretty interesting for a while. I thought that was fun. I mean, and of course, and Cressy, you know, I guess he's the preeminent serve volley in the game because I don't know who the second one is. I mean, he's just kind of the guy running this tactic. And it was interesting to see. It was fun to watch a lot of the points and see how he was pressing and asking questions. to Novak at the same. And, Gil, you may, when we were chatting to that match, you wanted to talk about service return. So we can get into that in a little bit, but I, I was, I was impressed yet again, by Novak. I mean, yet again by how he just solves the problem and stays the course and knows that at a key stage of the match, he's gotta, he's gotta get the other guy to blink
1: the disparity in Cressy's serve points one versus return points one. I mean, I have this theory that people are either servers or they're either either returners. In other words, you kind of lean toward one or you lean toward the other in your natural state. Now, you can really work on the one that's a little bit weaker Um you know, and, and try to even it up. And I think that's what our big three have done really well. Like if, if you're a natural server, like Roger, you've worked on your return game. If you're more of a natural returner, like Novak, you've worked on your serve game and they've become elite. But, um, and I think the reason that you're either a server or a returner by nature is just your personality, you know, like I, I'm a server because I like to be in control. I like to start the point. I do not like to have the point started on me in a way that I do not desire. So this Cressy guy is this example in the extreme. He's really got to work on his return game because um, he may be onto something. He pay, he played a good match, a close match with one of the greatest Players of all time so if he can just make some strides in that return game he may be on to something
2: well in the return game for someone like that who serves as big and i like i like the way you pose those emmy the the instructor i've worked with for years steve stefanke he has this great these are two games in tennis the serve game and the return game and you start to see the game that way it has a lot of implications for skill building and a lot of a lot of revealing about what baseline rally games are limited in doing but uh so Cressy, when you can hold that often, it's kind of like the the Isner model. Your return game, though, should be based on winning three points in one sequence. In other words, you got to take cuts. Like Agassi, Agassi said to, um, did he say this to Karlovich? He said, anytime you hit or have a rally longer than three points, three balls, you should stop the points anyway. You know, it's like <laughs> you know, the guy should just be like going after returns. That's how people uh, play a Brian teacher. In a way, that's a little bit how Sampras played. You know, shot games would fly by, three all, four all. And then it was uh, shoot out of the okay corral.
0: That's how Isner plays.
2: Well, mm-hmm. anyway, so that's how he's there. Exactly. That's how he, and that's how he attempts to play, and yet he hasn't quite had the, the skill to always pull it off to the to the extent yeah. that he would like. But yeah, it's it's an interesting. It's 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 a interesting approach. And yet there was Novak right there to capitalize on the blinking.
0: In essence, yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, Cressy doesn't get to net on his return games. Right. I, I, I do when think- When he that- has
1: the opportunity to, like it's you're crazy. so aggressive coming in on your serve, just because this is a return point, Why you hit a deep ball, get in there.
2: Just run. <laughs> oh, well, you get like, my thinking is when you come to net on someone, even if you lose the point, you you still get like a, a 0.25 tax credit. You know, there's just like, You've you've made him come up with something. And even even a guy like Novak may only have 38 passing shots in his back. I mean, so <laughs> you just gotta, I mean, you force him to hit something good. That's why um, like Matt Spielander told me once how he hated playing Edberg, not because Edberg had a big serve at all. It's like he knew hit this 80-mile-hour kick serve, then he hit a volley into a corner, I always gotta run and hit a passing shot. But again, uh, serve and volley, it's it's neat to see Cressy, but it's um it's so little learned at young age is so it's hard to imagine pro players once they reach the stage suddenly like incorporating it into their game i think it's the development comes so it was refreshing that was a fun match
0: yeah it, it was at the same time and this is going to sound harsh but i got to keep it real <laughs> uh cressy was impressive on his service games that was you know very much uh He should feel proud of only getting his serve broken once and the serve volley actually worked pretty effectively against the greatest returner in the game. On Djokovic's service games, to your guys' points, it looked like Novak against an ITF-level player. It did. It sounds very harsh. To me, that's what it looked like Uh, completely. And here are the stats. Novak won uh, 48 of 54 service points. That's 89% service points won two double faults for Djokovic. So when Novak made the serve, he won the point. Cressy was just, you know, a baseliner that was, could not uh, could not uh, hold the candle to, to Djokovic from the baseline. And uh, that's why, although the scoreline was close, um, you know, it, it almost didn't feel close because of that. Right, because
2: you were wondering when, how Cressy was ever going to kind of, get his break or whatever. It was a classic, what, seven, six, six, four. And uh, so Cressy won four points in rallies on Novak's serve. Yes. You know, so he won six and,
1: and Novak yeah. did not have a ton of aces. So Cressy was making returns. So what was happening there?
2: I'll tell you. Uh, well, look, when you're, uh, I, I learned this from watching Connors beat people like that and Agassi, you don't want to try for aces you want to get the rally going on reasonable terms and you want to learn, you hit like Connors had this Agassi uh, Novak, a reliable serve that you can place to a spot fairly deep. You get in a high percentage of first serves and get the but, rally. But going. we're not
1: talking about Novak's strategy. We're talking about Cressy and his return game. If he oh. was making returns. So the rallies were getting started. We know that. Um, why was he not able to, at, at such a you know drastic difference between his service games, if the rally was getting started, why was he not able to employ the same net skills and volleys and win the point?
0: Because he was playing, playing like a counterpuncher. That's and right. He doesn't, yeah. he, he doesn't move well enough to play like that, and he doesn't you know hit his forehand on the run well enough to, to play like that.
1: So he can approach the net very well when he's serving. He's in control of the placement of the ball. He's really good at coming in off his serve, but he's not as good at just coming in off a generic approach shot or placing the ball in a certain area to get his opponent in trouble, noticing that and coming in.
2: Because when you play a guy like Novak, your best chance for a short ball might well be the one that bounces inside the service line known as the serve. And so you got to learn a little bit of the the grip and Hmm. rip, chip and charge, because otherwise he was probably thinking, yeah, I'm going to start the rally and then I'll have a chance to get my short. No, it's Novak. You're being smothered. I mean, Chris Everett did the same thing against a lot of people. There's depth, there's angle, there's pace. You're not getting, he probably does well against, he can probably have his share of approach shots against some other guys to a degree. But a guy like Novak is so good at depth and depth, most of all, depth is what, depth is the, kryptonite to the net rusher i
0: right. agree R- return in charge where was the return in charge oh well,
2: you got to do you got to take some, some slap you got to practice i mean that's a that's a practice you know Gil. since we've played i know we're just i'm just a civilian but i like that play but i think that requires yeah. practicing shorter back swings it's also movement it's a movement to the ball and timing and again but in a way you got to do that and you got to let novak think i'm not playing any tennis here this guy's slapping, this guy's hacking, this guy's cracking. What's going on? I'm not hitting. And instead, uh, what Cressy did, he let Novak get grooved into rallies. And then that aided Novak's subsequent ability to return once it got to crunch time in those sets. What cressy has got to do is take the racket out of Novak's hands, the whole match, start to finish. You're not hitting anything. I'm slapping returns. I'm chipping. I'm cracking. I'm dropping anything. Karlovich would do that well,
0: in a way. Yes. Yep. Um, next for for Novak, you know, full disclosure: when this comes out, his match against Hachinov, uh, or at least when most people are watching this, is going to be uh, probably over, uh, and and we won't know the result. We don't know the result at the moment, uh, but you know, Djokovic Hachinov 2018 was kind of uh, you know Karen's real breakthrough, and I was really high on him after that match. Uh, I, I thought that he was gonna going to contend for more big titles in the future that didn't actually end up happening. You know, it was kind of, I mean, Hatchinov didn't make another final on tour until January of this year in, uh, in what in Adelaide or Melbourne, you know, one of the Australian open lead ups, although he did make the Olympic final. So, yeah, I mean that it's funny that match, it was, uh, it was kind of a one-off when, when you look back on it, right, Amy?
1: Yeah. And I'll be interested to see Novak with all his analytics and scouting and all that. Does he go predominantly to Hachinov's forehand? Because that's one of those, quote unquote, jacked forehands that when when it's on, it's deadly, but you can start to wear it down and get errors out of it. So I tactically I'm loving this match just out of curiosity to see what Novak does.
2: I think it's a great call. I think it's a great tactical call the whole role of the 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 flat forehand the, the 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 mercurial forehand is worth is worth the query. Yes,
0: for sure. Djokovic has won 6 straight against Hatchinov since that 2018 final. Um I think you're right, Amy. It's kind of a reversal of Novak's regular tactics because usually against a righty, Djokovic is like, your backhand can't hang with mine. So mm-hmm. let's trade a couple of these and then I'll find my opening. But against Hatchinoff, it's definitely the other way. It's, let's see if your forehand can hang with mine. Uh, the, the beauty, and that's the beauty of Novak, right? Like, depending on the opponent, he's well equipped to play either pattern uh, to bias himself towards either pattern, depending on, on the opponent. And that's what happens when you have that, that all around game.
1: I have a question for you guys on Novak. Um, which do you think is his better shot forehand or backhand
2: to find better?
1: Well, I'd leave that to you guys.
2: Okay. I think it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't like the shield sword thing. That's too binary for my money, but I think, okay. I think, okay, hmm. the forehands, forehands are usually more explosive, but the shot that I think is kind of like the the anchor of it all is that incredible backhand. So I don't know, like if, if you said, which which shot would you rather have? I'd rather- No,
1: no, this is really more about- a philosophy within Novak's camp about whether he should hit more backhands or run around and hit forehands more to that zone of the court where you can hit one or the other.
2: Oh, then I think he should run around more because he's got the skills to do it. and And I think that, I don't know if that means his forehand is better, but his forehand needs to be utilized. If we use an American football thing, it's like, who should I throw more to? the tight end who can get me 12 yards or the wide receiver who can get me 23 yards. And I think the yield from Novak using that forehand, I, yeah, I think I know I I've heard this dialogue recently too. I think it's great for him to, to step around and hit forehands. And particularly as he gets older, that's going to be some of his point shortening tactic along with coming to the net more.
0: The forehand's yeah. better. The forehand's better. It's the better shot. Relative to the field, the backhand stands out more. Because I, you know, especially in the men's game, everybody's backhand is pretty much worse. There's a couple players, uh, literally, you can, you can, I think you could fit them in, in the top 50 or top 100 on one hand, whose backhands are legitimately better than their forehands, um, albeit Ben players, Pair. Yeah, Benoit Pair is definitely one of them, although he's not in the top 100 anymore, Amy. Um, oh,
2: sorry, <laughs> I missed wait, wait, that. You're saying that very few players have better
1: backhands than forehands?
0: Yeah. Just isolating the shot. Very few. Just, yeah,
1: yeah I would I agree so. with that. I would agree with that. It's controversial. Um, cause people will come on here and say, no, so-and-so has the most awesome backhand ever. And it's, it's, again, it goes back to what you said, Joel Define better. Like, are you winning points off of that? Are you never missing with that backhand? I- are you able to control the point with that backhand? You know, what are you doing with it? And just generally speaking, I agree with what Gil said.
2: The, the history of tennis is usually if you have a choice, take the forehand. Because the forehand can the forehand can generate more of everything besides the flexibility of being able to run around the backhand and, and generate certain whip and acceleration. And usually it's the this is the forehands that have taken the game forward. The backhands though, backhand needs to come along. So it's an interesting. Let me uh, let me go back to my lab and construct the kind of analogy that gets what this really is, because it has to be seen in in what the game what the game really is meant to do for the player, particularly in this baseline based era.
0: That's a great question, great topic to end on. Let's see how Djokovic does against Hatchnov and as the Paris Masters rolls on, we will uh, record next when we kind of know the result of uh, of Novak's week in paris next gen finals are next week followed by the atp tour finals in Turin, and uh looking looking to finish the year strong here on three that'll do it for this episode remember we're available on all podcast platforms we appreciate it if you leave a rating on apple and spotify and if you're watching on youtube like comment and subscribe we will see you next time on the next episode of three